You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. I love once we get to this point in the season of Advent. On this last Sunday, before we get to our candlelight service where we light that center candle, we're reminded of the unique nature of not just the entirety of the Christian year, but especially the season of Advent. Because the season of Advent is unique. And just like we have this wreath at the front that is, that is circular, the Christian year cycles us over and over and over again through the anticipation of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the reminder that Jesus came to bring the gospel to the world, and that he's God incarnate, the suffering and the struggling of Jesus as he was tempted through the wilderness that we remember in the season of Lent. And then we go to Holy Week, we remember the crucifixion and the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. And then beyond that, we remember the calling to the church that that through the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, God gave the church the mission to go out and to continue his work and to be the hands and feet of Christ until Jesus comes again, which we remember on the last Sunday before the season of Advent begins. And so in a weird way, the season of Advent is both the first season of this church year and the last. It's taking our minds and our hearts back in time as the people awaited the coming of the Messiah into the world. And it's pushing our hearts forward as we wait for Christ to return and make everything right and everything new. And so as we sit in the season of Advent, we're in a time where people that talk about these things would talk about it as a time of already and not yet. There's so many things represented in the Advent wreath the love and the hope and the joy and the peace that Jesus brought into the world, things that we have experienced in part, but not yet in full. We have the reminder that Jesus came into the world to begin his work of salvation, but we have the promise that he who began that good work will one day complete it. And so we've received some of these promises, but we still wait for their fulfillment. A time of already, but not yet. In the first century, the people of Israel were living in an already not yet of their own, where they had been longing for the promises of God. And they'd received some of those, the promises that God had made to Abraham, where he had promised a people that would come from Abraham and his generations and his descendants, and they would inhabit a land that God had reserved for them. They'd received some of these things. But then God was also speaking about something that had yet to come. The prophets were speaking about a time that as the people of God had gone into exile and were struggling and wandering and lost, the prophets were speaking of a time when God would come and redeem and restore them back to who they were meant to be. And so they were living in a very similar kind of already, but not yet. And we see that in the example of a man named Simeon in the book of Luke. And we're going to take just a a small detour from the book of Revelation to look at this passage that comes just after the birth of Christ. But I think this ties into not only the Advent season, but also a significant portion of the things that we've been discussing in the book of Revelation. Because we look at the life of Simeon, we see a man who believed in the promises of God, who held firmly to those promises, who believed that he was going to see those within his own lifetime, And we see an example of how he was using his life 
and how he was using this period of waiting in both expectation and anticipation, but also in tireless work of glorifying and loving God. And so I want to look at the example of Simeon this morning. And in the midst of the season of Advent, in the midst of our study through the book of Revelation, I think as we look at his life, we can learn how to wait the way that followers of God are supposed to wait. Learn how to navigate this time of already and not yet as we've received some of the promises of God, but wait for the fulfillment of all of those things to come to fruition. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 22 through 35 this morning. And this is the word of God. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all your peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we just thank you and we praise you for the fact that you have not forgotten us. That as we wait for Christ to make all things right and all things new, as we wait for the fullness of our salvation to come, God, we know that you are working in the midst of our waiting. God, we know that each and every day you are shaping us to be more and more like Christ. And so, God, I just ask that you help us to learn to wait well. This has been so much of a theme in the book of Revelation and also now in this Advent season, God, but this is, this is our calling each and every day of our lives. And so as we look at the example of your servant, Simeon, God, I pray that the characteristics and attributes and work that was so present in his life would be present in ours as well. And the same words that Luke uses to describe this man would be the words that could describe each and every one of your children here today. And so God, we just ask for your strength and your wisdom and your power to do all the things that you've called us to do. 
And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we see Simeon enter the story here, the very first word that Luke uses to describe Simeon is righteous. He says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous. And so I started thinking about all the people throughout Scripture that that word could be applied to. Some of them, it was directly spoken about them. But because of the circumstances that Simeon found himself in, I feel like I was drawn to the book of Daniel, where we see some incredible pictures of righteousness in difficult places, with men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and with Daniel himself, where over the course of their exile, as they were taken from their homeland and brought into this foreign place that was not their home, amongst people who worshiped different gods and lived radically different lifestyles, they still held fastly to the life that God had called them to live. And when the people around them knelt to a foreign God, they stood. And when the people around them were calling for Daniel to not kneel any longer to his God and to stand and not worship the God of Israel, the God of Isaac and Jacob, Daniel day after day after day, three times a day, went and knelt in his window, even at the risk of his own life. And we see a very similar kind of thing happening in the life of Simeon. Because while Simeon wasn't physically in exile, Simeon was very much in exile like all of the Jewish people in the first century. And yes, Simeon got to live in the city of Jerusalem. And yes, he got to go and worship in the temple, something that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego couldn't do. But Simeon was living in a very different Jerusalem. This was a place that was very much under Roman rule and Roman occupation. Their freedom of religion and expression would go only so far as the Caesar would allow it to go. And they had to live with the constant reminder that at any time it could be taken away. And really within less than a generation after the life of Simeon, we see the Roman government do exactly that in Jerusalem. But not only were they under foreign occupation in their own city, but they were also surrounded by Greek thought and philosophy and religion. That it infested not only the people around them, but also the people themselves, where you see groups like the Sadducees that were following God in name only. They were Jewish in name only, but were Hellenistic and very Greek in their religion and their philosophy. But even inside the religious leaders in the first century, we see a great deal of hypocrisy and misplaced priorities with Jesus constantly through his ministry coming into conflict with these people who claim to be following God, but were seeking after the fame and the rewards and all the things that come out of the people's praise around them. And so while Simeon was living in a place that should have been comfortable, righteousness was still very hard to come by. But Simeon, like Noah, and Joseph and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego before him was a man who remained righteous in the midst of overwhelming opposition. As we've been going through not only the book of Revelation, but even before that, when we were looking through the teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke, we've learned a lot about the nature of the kingdom of God. And one of the things that we see all throughout the New Testament is the kingdom of God is not a physical place. Jesus says it's not where you can look and say, here it is or there it comes, but the kingdom of God is in our midst. 
And we've seen in the book of Revelation this picture of the kingdom of God being a spiritual kingdom with no borders or boundaries or barriers, but can go to anyone and is a part of anyone who follows after Christ. It's the church universal all around the world and throughout history. And so because of that, what we see, not just here in our world now, but throughout the course of Christian history, we have seen followers of Jesus living in some places where it is easy to follow Christ and where it's comfortable to follow Christ, and some places where it's uncomfortable, and some places where it's dangerous. We've seen followers of God living in places that are relatively moral and fairly well-behaved, and we've seen followers of Christ living in places of outright sin and rebellion and debauchery against God. But no matter where followers of Christ find ourselves, and no matter how difficult or uncomfortable the circumstances may be, all of us have the exact same calling. And that's to be righteous. The book of Revelation has taught us about these false kingdoms and these enemies of God that are pulling for our affections. And then James reminds us that not only do we have outward influences trying to keep us away from following God and lead us into a lifestyle that isn't ours and that isn't who we're supposed to be in a life of unrighteousness, also James tells us that our, our desires, because of our sin, are evil and trying to lead us away from Christ. And so we're being constantly confronted from within and without to abandon the life that God has called us to live, to abandon our passion and our love for reflecting God's goodness and glorifying him in everything that we've done and live in a way that either glorifies ourselves or glorifies something that is in fact not God. But our call is to be like Simeon to remain righteous, even when righteousness is hard to find and even when righteousness is difficult to obtain, to live our lives in a way that glorifies God each and every moment and to live as examples of the kingdom of God and the righteousness of Christ to the very best of our ability every single moment and every single day. And so as we wait for Christ to return and make everything right and everything new, our personal holiness and our commitment to righteousness matters. And it's something that we should take seriously every single day, making war on the sin in our lives, standing against the temptations that come, and choosing each and every day to use the freedom that's been given to us by Christ to follow him and honor him in everything that we do. And so we need to be people who are righteous. But not only that, here Simeon is described as righteous and devout. He's righteous and he's devout. Things have changed so much. And maybe people have always said that, but I feel like over the course of my life, I've seen a lot of weird changes, especially when it comes to technology. And it seems like with each passing year, these changes are amplified more and more and more. And one place that I've noticed it maybe more than anywhere else is in a waiting room. Because I remember about 15 years ago, you would go into a waiting room and there would be a diversity of things happening around you. You would see maybe somebody that brought a book to read. Maybe somebody brought in some work from the office as you're waiting for the doctor and they're knocking some things out. Maybe somebody's flipping through the magazines on the table and they'll just go through one and go through another and go through another. And then you could usually find somebody who had been there a while that have already gotten bored with what they brought in, gotten bored with what the doctor's office had, and they're just picking up boxes of Kleenexes and just reading the label on the back because there's just nothing else to keep you entertained or occupied. And it's a little more difficult now because when you look around a waiting room, chances are you're just going to see a bunch of people with phones in their hands. And so you don't really know what they're doing to occupy their time. But it was interesting because you could look around a waiting room when all this was happening and you could tell a lot about the people in the waiting room 
just by what they were doing while they were waiting. What was occupying their time when there was nothing to occupy their time? And so Simeon was a man who was waiting. He'd received this promise from the Holy Spirit that he was going to see the Christ, that he was going to see God's salvation and be able to recognize it and know it before he died. But he had no idea of when that was actually going to take place. And so what was Simeon doing while he was waiting? Well, he devoted himself to a life of pursuing God in everything that he did. He was a devout man in his faith. Now, a lot of times when we think about righteousness, righteousness can feel like it's just a state of being, like this is a righteous person because of what God has done for us or because they, they have the appearance of a righteous person, or maybe it's someone who we recognize as having really good behavior, somebody who doesn't do the wrong things, who tends to always make the right choice and the right decision. We would look at that as someone who is righteous in their actions. But for Simeon, his righteousness here is tied directly to the fact that he is a devout man. It's specifically tied to his devout adherence to his faith. It seems like every generation in the church and in Christianity, we have, we have buzzwords that talk about the kind of Christian you should be. So we need to be radical Christians. Or in the past, it's been things like we need to be Christians that are sold out or Christians that are on fire. And it's this language that describes a very outward expression of passion and excitement about our faith. And of course, we should absolutely be excited about our faith. We should absolutely be radical in our devotion to Christ, and we should be sold out with everything that we have to God. And we can use all these languages to describe how we should approach our faith. But a lot of times, this kind of terminology is directly connected towards some sort of spiritual experience that gives us an emotional rush something that gets our, our spiritual adrenaline pumping. But what happens is it looks a lot like a firecracker where it shoots up and we're excited because we have a great church service or maybe we go to a conference or a camp or something like that or we read a particular passage of scripture or hear a worship song that just moves our heart or go on a mission trip and there's something that just shakes us to the core and we think I just have to do everything that I can to honor and glorify God and we're loud and we're moving and we're shooting through the sky like a firework and then boom, it blows up in this climactic thing but then it kind of starts to fizzle. But when we talk about being devout, it feels more quiet at times. So what does it look like to be devout? The devout Christian is someone that hones their righteousness in the quiet and ordinary moments, recognizing the still and gentle whispers of God as we approach scripture and prayer day after day after day after day. A devout Christian is someone who doesn't let their right hand know what their left hand is doing. Being willing to love and to honor and serve God, even if no one is around to see it or no one is around to confirm that it ever happened. As Jesus tells us how we should give and how we should serve and how we should care for those in need, he uses the terminology of secrecy, not because we have to be ashamed of it, because so often we have this need and this desire to proclaim to everyone around us, look at all of these things that I'm doing, because, I mean, it feels good. It feels good for someone to look at us and say, oh, you're so nice. Oh, you're so sweet. Oh, it's amazing that you did that. You must really love God and you must really have this great affection for people. And it starts to puff us up a little bit and it can be a little bit addicting. 
But a devout Christian is willing to do that even if there is no one around to be seen. Even if it's something that never sees the light of day, recognizing that God sees and God knows, and that's enough. A devout Christian is someone willing to do the hard things at the unseen times for the glory of God and the good of their neighbors. We can identify how devout we are, I think, when we start to evaluate the quiet moments in our lives. Not the things that are worthy of posting on social media, not the things that even happen on Sunday mornings in the midst of the congregations, but what does it look like in the quiet moments of the morning as we wake up? In the quiet moments of the evening when we go to bed? In the times when we're walking in the midst of strangers where nobody knows us and nobody cares what we do, what does our life look like? Are we still devoted? Are we still working? Are we still trusting in God for everything? Are we still using our hands and feet to accomplish the good and the glory of Jesus? Simeon was a man who is only seen in this moment in Scripture. It's clear that he's an older man. He's lived a full life at this point, and we know nothing about him. We see none of his works, none of his actions. There's no writings from Simeon. We see one prayer that Simeon makes, and one thing that he says to the mother and father of Jesus, and that's all. But his entire life is summarized in that one word that he was devout and all that he did. And so I wonder, what kind of words would people use if they were describing me and my faith? What kind of words would someone use if they were describing you and your faith? Maybe at times they could say, oh, that's someone who's radical about their faith. That's someone who's on fire for Christ. That's someone who's passionate about Jesus. That's someone who does a lot of things and serves all the time as often as they can. But I wonder if someone was describing me and my faith, would they be able to use the word devout? That Chris is someone who is devout in his faith. Whether it is now or not, it absolutely can be. Because being devout is not something that's, that's magic or something that's hereditary. Simeon wasn't anyone special in and of his own right, but he was willing to put in the daily work of doing what it takes to grow deeper in his relationship with God and to be shaped by the goodness of God's grace and God's mercy and led by the Holy Spirit and following after him wherever he would lead. And that calling is to all of us. And the ability to pursue that is inherent in each and every person that is trusted in the grace and the mercy of Jesus. But it just requires that we each and every day take that calling seriously and spend time in Scripture learning about who God is. Spend time in prayer speaking to our Father who calls us into his presence to come boldly being intentional with every single moment of our lives, looking for the opportunities, whether seen or unseen, to be able to serve and to glorify God in everything that we do. And it's not as exciting often as being able to walk into an environment where we just get good and juiced up based on worship or some sort of experience or, or something that does a sermon that comes to us, but it does so much more in the long term because it's a long and difficult journey but it's one that leads us each and every day to be more and more of who we're supposed to be in Christ and helps us to cling on to that faith 
and to hold fast in our righteousness. And so Simeon was righteous and he was devout, but also Simeon was waiting, which is obvious. We've talked about that a lot. But I think it's interesting to know here that Simeon was waiting specifically, that there was something specific that Simeon was waiting for that allowed him to continue down this pathway. And when it comes to waiting for something, especially if it's something that feels like it's never coming, there's a certain threshold where it becomes easy to give up and walk away. But I've noticed, at least in my own life, it kind of depends on what I'm waiting for. So for instance, let's say I make a random impulse buy for something cheap on Amazon. Not that that ever happens. But let's say that it maybe would be a pack of about 200 Pokemon cards that I said were from, or not cards, but stickers. The cards, I don't really get those things. We bought them for my kids. I don't know how to play it. And so we just made up a game around it. But I love stickers. And so I might have said I was buying a large pack of Pokemon stickers for my children. And they've received a few of them. But also I've stuck them on a lot of things of my own. But I purchased these things and then kind of forgot about it because I was like, oh, I didn't know that existed. And then they were, and I hit buy it now because it's a very easy thing to do. And I feel like that's intentional. And so I clicked the buy it now. And then I just walked away because they were very cheap and just didn't think about them again. And so if those little stickers had never come, eh, I would have never noticed. And so it was easy because those weren't a thing of, of high priority to just walk away and never think about it again. But there was one time where I was, I'm in this Facebook group where you can buy and sell guitar equipment, musical equipment of various kinds. Cause I like to buy everything used because if you buy something nice, but it's used, then you get a much bigger discount on it. It's a whole thing. I'll explain it to you later. So I was in this group and I found this guitar that somebody had posted for sale and I loved it, but I didn't have the money to buy it, but I had been looking to sell my guitar. And so I thought, well, I could try to sell it really quick, but what if somebody picks this thing up? Because I'd researched it, there weren't a lot of them. I was really excited about it, it was exactly what I wanted. And so I sent a message to the guy and I said, hey man, what would you think about trading? And he was like, yeah, I think we can do that. And we worked out all the details. And then after I worked out all the details, I realized this is a man that lives in Missouri and I'm not gonna drive to Missouri and he's not gonna drive to Georgia. And so the arrangement that was come to, agreed on between the two of us, is that we were going to pack up our instruments and mail them away and hope the other one came back. And now we went through a lot of process where I took a picture of myself in the post office with the instrument. He did the same thing. There was a whole lot of weird, we got to know each other really well and have never spoken again. It's really, this is a weird time to be alive. So I mail off my guitar and literally I'm just hoping that a guitar of equal value is going to be coming back to me and it will be the one that I wanted and it's not gonna be a box of sawdust. And so every single day I was checking the tracking number. Every single day, I was watching when the mail truck came by. I, when it got to a little further past the time when it should have been coming, I start calling the post office. I start sending a message. Hey man, you know, just making sure. I mean, did you get the one I sent you? Cause I haven't got the one you sent me, but it's fine. I'm sure I trust you. Like we had a whole thing. Yeah, I saw the picture of you. It's fine. But just, can you just make me feel a little better about this? And every single day I was coming back to it and it didn't matter how long it would have taken. I was going to make sure that I got that guitar. Even if at a certain point I had to drive to Missouri and find this dude myself. Cause I had his address. Cause I made him a guitar. He had my address too. That was weird. Huh. It was a few years ago. If he was going to kill me, I'd be dead by now. So as long as it would have lasted, I was going to be waiting for that because it was of great value to me. And so the thing that we're waiting on has an incredible impact on the way in which we wait. When we look at the book of Revelation, it's been difficult at times because it's so symbolic and it's drenched in this apocalyptic language 
And even when it comes to the, the times that the book of Revelation gives us, they are clearly meant to be interpreted symbolically and significantly, but symbolically. When we look at, at words like three and a half years or time, times and half a times, these are, are small fractions of time to help us understand the big picture of eternity in comparison to the things that the church goes through and the church struggles. And even if three and a half years represents 2,000 years, that's still a very small picture of time in the midst of God's eternity, but it's hard to decipher and understand all of these things. And so it can be frustrating when John, at the beginning of his letter, writes about these things that must soon take place. Or even at the end of the book of Revelation, when John says, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, because quickly doesn't feel like 2,000 years and beyond. For us, quickly feels like a matter of weeks or years at best, but not literal millennia. And so as we talk about waiting for Christ to come and make all things right and all things new, sometimes the uncertainty of that timeline, if we don't recognize the fullness of what we're expecting, can cause us to wonder and even become lazy or apathetic or even turn away from the faith that we have in Christ. But Simeon was a man who waited a lifetime for something. And we don't have any indication of when God made this revelation to Simeon that he was going to see the Messiah before he died, but it clearly happened at some point. And based on the, the response that Simeon has, this prayer where he says, now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. This is a prayer of a man who was just waiting for a very long time. It's a prayer that is both worship and a little bit of catharsis where he's saying, finally, your promise has been fulfilled. But even though his timing was uncertain, it's clear that Simeon never wavered because he was waiting for something that he knew would be amazing. Something that was specifically revealed and given to him that he knew once he was able to touch and feel God's promise, all of the waiting, all of the life of righteousness and devotion and devoutness to his faith, all of it was going to be worth it. And I love how Luke describes what Simeon was waiting for. He says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And this is something that not only was Simeon waiting for this, but in the midst of, of this first century world, in Jerusalem and, and everywhere that, that the Jewish people found themselves, there was a messianic expectation where people were ready and longing to see the Christ come into the world, but they weren't the first people to have this expectation. For generations and generations before Simeon walked into this temple, the people of God were waiting and longing for Christ to come into the world. And Simeon had that hope and that expectation and all of that on his shoulders, and he was clinging fast to that hope, knowing that he would see it, and when he did, everything would be worth it. And as we've already seen, this Advent wreath, represents these things that Jesus brought into the world. Things that we get to experience on a daily basis as followers of Christ. We're told that God loves us with a steadfast and unflinching love and that he lavishes that love on us. We're told that we have a hope that will never pass away because our hope is rooted in Jesus and we experience that hope even in the midst of very difficult and hard circumstances. As we come to the end of a year, it's easy to look back and reflect. And I know that some of you have had very difficult 2019s. 
And when you think about all the things that we've had to endure over the past year, maybe over the past two years or decade or even your entire life, we look at those things and we recognize how difficult and harsh they can be, but also we don't mourn like those who have no hope. But we cling to the hope of Jesus. We can know joy. As Paul was writing to the Philippian church, as Paul was doing that from a Roman prison, basically waiting for his execution, writing to a church that was going through very difficult persecution and hardship, he writes them a letter. And in the midst of that letter, he says, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. As John is writing a letter to Christians that are in great danger and pain, circulating all over the churches in 1 John, He says, I'm writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. And so even though our circumstances may be difficult and hard at times, we can still have joy because we know Christ. We're promised in scripture that when we come to God and seek after him, even in the midst of the most difficult times, he will give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. And we have these things in part, but they're clearly not perfected yet. Because there are times when it's easy for followers of Christ to feel hopeless. There are times when we're not very good at loving, and even times when we can feel like God has stopped loving us. There are times when our lives can feel restless and violent and not peaceful at all, that all of these things that Jesus brought into the world, all of them can be a little shaky in our lives because we're still weak and broken by sin. But then in the middle, that white candle represents the fact that all of this is rooted in Christ. And even though we only experience these things in part, we have a hope that one day Christ is gonna bring them all to their fullness and we are gonna get to experience them not only momentarily, but for all of eternity. And as we're in the book of Revelation, we are on a very specific trajectory. It begins with John seeing the glory of God and all of who God is and the magnificence of the revealed Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. But then we start seeing all of this unfold with God's judgment and wrath and the brokenness of sin and these kingdoms of the world that are in opposition to God and the enemies of God that are pulling not only at him, but pulling, trying to pull us away from God and from following after him. And we see this movement of God dealing with sin and dealing with brokenness and dealing with his enemies. But this trajectory is leading us to a place where he wipes those things away. But not only that, but we're gonna come to a passage of scripture where we see Jesus promise us that there will be a day when he'll wipe away every tear and that the sin will be no more, that sickness and sorrow and brokenness will be no more, that death itself will be no more. That's the hope that we have in Christ. And when we look through scripture, the promise that we have of salvation is clear that God has began this good work in us, that if we followed after Jesus for salvation, that that is a once and for all thing, but it is a process and we are on a trajectory of each and every day, God shaping us and making us more and more who we're supposed to be and fitting us for eternity. And we have a promise that he is not finished with us yet. And even when we breathe our last, we have a hope beyond the grave. That because God loves us, that anyone who puts their faith in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. It's written in scripture. And as we've seen, as we sang out of our own mouths today, that the Bible teaches that all of God's promises are yes and amen. And so for those of us who have been saved by Jesus, we have been sealed by the promise and by the hope that we will never 
be out of his hands again. And Peter tells us that we have an inheritance that is protected by God and it is absolutely worth the wait. And so this promise needs to be firmly on our hearts and on our minds each and every day to keep us working and waiting, to remind us that our devotion to our faith and that our passion for righteousness, even when it's difficult and even when it's hard, is absolutely worth it. Being able to find love and joy and hope and peace, even in the midst of a world that is none of those things at times, is always worth it because one day, not only will we experience the consolation of one place, but we have a promise that we are longing for that is the consolation of all of God's creation. And he will drive all of this out of his good and perfect city and we will be with Christ forever. So just like Simeon, we need to be righteous and devout but also we need to be waiting specifically, constantly reminding ourselves of the hope that we have in the gospel. And then finally here, we see that Simeon was led by the Spirit. Verse 27 says, And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do from according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God. I think it's really amazing as we come to this passage of scripture that this language pops up that says he came in the spirit. Because we've seen this a couple times in the book of Revelation. As John is receiving this incredible vision of God's big plan of salvation, we see a couple times John say that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and that's how he received this vision from God. But because of the nature of the book of Revelation and how big and overwhelming it was, and because of the fact that we know who John is, that John was one of the disciples of God, one who called himself the disciple that Jesus loved, who had a deep and a personal relationship with Christ during his life and ministry, and then one of the foundations on which the church was built, who was able to become an elder in the church that all of the churches looked to for guidance and leadership. When we look at John say that he went in the spirit and received this big vision, this is language that can feel very out of our reach or out of our grasp. But here's Simeon. And as we've already seen, he's, he's just a guy. As far as the big narrative of scripture, Simeon has a very part, a very small part in this movement. And yet, it says here in this passage, that same language that John uses to describe how he received his vision from God, Simeon is given that same language attached to him, saying that he came into the temple in the spirit. And what we see here is that his righteousness and his devout commitment to his faith and his hope was driven by his reliance on the Holy Spirit of God. It was the Holy Spirit that gave him this revelation that he was gonna see the Messiah and he was moving into the temple in the spirit. He was trusting and following the spirit of God in every place in his life. When we start talking about language like this, usually we find ourselves on, on one end of a very large pendulum. Because a lot of times when you talk about the Spirit and the works of the Holy Spirit and what that looks like, sometimes that pendulum swings way over here to the point of abuse and misrepresentation and people talking about the Spirit of God in ways that Scripture does not. 
And so that can create some concern and some, some fear in the lives of some people. And so what we do is then we have a tendency to swing the pendulum back over here to the side where we just are so afraid to talk about anything to do with the Holy Spirit that we neglect him completely, even though it's the Holy Spirit of God that saves us and draws us to the Father, the Holy Spirit of God that counsels us and comforts us, the Holy Spirit of God that applies this hope and love and joy and peace in the life of every believer. It's the Spirit of God that keeps us saved and empowers us to do the work that we're called to do. And so just like we've seen in the book of Revelation over and over again, when there's a pendulum that swings from one side to the other, usually the gospel is found somewhere in the middle. When we look at the book of Acts and we see what happens at Pentecost, as God moves through his people in an incredible way. And then we look at the rest of the book of Acts as these incredibly ordinary people are doing incredible, awesome things for the kingdom of God as they're coming together as the church and thousands of people are being saved and they're in awe of all that God is doing around them through all of these incredible wonders. And we see the apostles going out and taking the gospel all over the world. It's overwhelmingly awesome. But something that I think far too often we put in a backwards time and place. We say that's what happened at the beginning of the early church because that's the apostles and that was going on there. And we have a tendency to forget that the same spirit that dwelled within the early church, the same spirit that dwelled within Simeon as he came into the temple is the same spirit that saves us, resides in us, counsels us, leads us, and empowers us not only individually, but as the church of God. And so I wonder how many of us felt today that we came to church in the spirit. That we began this Lord's Day in deep and passionate prayer, asking the spirit of God to lead us and guide us in everything that we do today. How often do we commit ourselves to the Holy Spirit in deep prayer, seeking his direction in everything that he leads us to do? Because he is working and guiding and leading us at every moment. And we need to be the kind of people who are led by the Spirit. Waiting is hard. And the work that God has called us to do is incredibly difficult, far beyond our abilities or our skills. And so we desperately need to rely on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives each and every day. And in the same way that Simeon followed him completely and wholly, that needs to be the marker of who we are and how we live. And so we are waiting in a very similar way to how Simeon was waiting. And in the midst of this Advent hope, that's not just for the Advent season, this, this waiting doesn't go away when Christmas starts. Because while we've already seen Christ come into the world as a baby, growing in wisdom and stature and favor with men, going and teaching about the kingdom of God and offering himself once and for all as a sacrifice for sin and a hope of resurrection. We have a promise that he will come again and that he is gonna redeem and restore once and for all his people and his creation. And so we need to be the kind of people like Simeon who are longing for the day when we'll receive what has been revealed to us. And as we go through each passing moment of the book of Revelation, recognizing some things that have happened, some things that are still happening, and some things that are yet to come. We need to be people who are constantly focused on living in righteousness, reflecting the goodness and the character of Jesus in all that we do. We need to be people who are devout, 
Not Christians only in name or Christians only when our emotions and our energy reaches that level, but each and every day doing the hard things in the quiet places to grow in our faith and our wisdom and in our devotion to God. We need to be people who are waiting specifically, reminding ourselves day after day of the gospel and not only that Christ has saved us, but also that Christ has a plan to fully redeem and restore us and to cling on to that eternal hope that we have in Jesus. And each and every day from this point until our last breath or until Christ comes again, praying that God would lead us and guide us through his spirit and that we would be able to do and accomplish far beyond our abilities for the glory of Christ and the good of his kingdom. And so let's look to Simeon as our guide. Let's look to Christ as our ultimate hope and be people who wait well as long as Christ calls us to wait. Father God, thank you that you're so patient with us for the times when we get frustrated, for the times when we lose hope, for the times that we just simply forget or don't care. God, we thank you for the examples of the men and women throughout scripture who were righteous in their waiting. God, for people like Daniel, and Rahab, Noah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Joseph, and Simeon. God, people that were waiting for your deliverance and your salvation, but waited and endured with an unwavering faith and devout hope in you. So God, I pray that you help us to follow that pattern and to recognize that the same hope that they had is the hope that we share. That your word is the same as it leads and guides us and directs us, that you are the same God today, yesterday, and forever. And the same Holy Spirit that empowered the church in the beginning is the Holy Spirit empowering the church here and now. So help us to walk in the Spirit to wait with anticipation and to lead lives that are righteous and devout in all that we do. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus.